Rico Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we have with us a guest we haven't spoken to in all about two and a half years, Kirsty Kaiser, the founding partner and principal of DKO Architecture. Kirsty Kaiser has built a highly regarded role as a urban designer and architect with a particular expertise in residential developments. His firm, DKO Architecture, is an award-winning design practices with offices in Australia, New Zealand, and Vietnam. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Kirsty Kaiser. Franco, it's uh, great to be on again, and um, we've had a really great year, and it's great to see you again. Well, we both... And it's great to travel. There you go. The, and, and we both look younger. We do. I'll just leave it at that. So speaking of when we last spoke, that was actually in May of May the fifth, twenty twenty. By the way, if one want to be exact, yeah, oh, a tough year, yeah, a tough couple of years actually. Um, you said to me, uh, and I'll quote you here: "One positive is that workplaces have become a lot more flexible to allow people to work from home efficiently." Well, good. Then I find out that you've just inked the deal on a $30 million HQ in Melbourne's in the north where, where you're going to be based, joint venture between you guys, Chapter Group and Monarch Property Partners, um, and Collingwood, I believe, isn't it? Um, so you're going to end up with four floors about 450 metres from your, your current headquarters. You, you, you go far, don't you? Um, so the, the point is, um, is that with what's happened, with what we know and what, we, what could happen further in line now that we've at our first taste of a pandemic, um, why choose building your own HQ? Um, well, we're always interested in our workspace, and I guess um, also being opportunistic uh, architects, and this opportunity came up, um, and it's a way that we can further tailor and curate and design the workplace as we want to work in it. Um, Yes, certainly flexibility is a um, one uh, thing that has come out of COVID, which I think is good. Albeit, we still would like most of our team in the office most of the time. Um, I just feel in a creative culture, um, physical proximity is important, but I do think we are flexible about people taking um, working working from home and uh, our, our policy is that we actually prefer them to work from home on Tuesdays, Wednesdays or Thursdays. We think that Mondays are a, a day where we sit, set the targets for the week and Fridays are a cultural day where we work very hard on the, on the uh, culture of every studio. So we, we still would like our... Um, our team to be in a in physical proximity eighty percent of the time. Hmm, interesting. So I, I have read that, that that a lot of offices around Australia are having problems bringing people in or back in rather, and Melbourne in particular. Um, do you, has that changed the way you think? Well, that? yes, I, I think it does, and. 
Look, I know, I think the stats are in the city of Melbourne, 63% of people have come back, which means that 37% haven't come back, which has had a huge um, impact on the city itself. In Sydney, I think it's 68% to 32%. So still a lot of people, a third of the workforce, aren't actually wanting to come back to work. My and our research kind of tells us that a lot of those people are in 60, 70,000 square metre towers where there are lift banks of 12 or 16 lifts. And most of those towers were built 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that the, the worker today, and I hate using the word worker, but um, the people that work in a workplace want to have a lot more say in how that workplace works. And I think the days of the eight square metre per person workplace are over. I think most contemporary workplaces now um, there'll be a lot more meeting rooms, a lot more Zoom rooms, a lot more uh, breakout rooms, a lot more auditoria, uh, a lot more uh, kitchens. So I think the nature of what a workplace is is actually really starting to change. And I think having an office that creates to that flexibility, I think it's really important. We've actually started talking about resimersal and which is really a mixture of residential and commercial. So residential is creating work environments that almost feel like home. Mm, interesting. Okay, we'll get on to that, on back on that actually, but I want to talk about art. Um, now that the Sydney Modern's open, everyone's talking about art up here in Sydney. Everyone's everyone's an art critic all of a sudden. But look, there is an adage, right, that art imitates life. Architecture, um, too, is an art form, yeah? Um, and it reflects how we live and how our changing lifestyles and obviously working lives um, change through time. Um, what about hotels? And in terms of what you just told me about, about um you know, workplaces. How have hotels, um, hotel design, how has it changed in the past few years? And do you think that what's what what's happened with the pandemic has influenced some of the more recent changes? Yes, I do. I think um, at any point in time as a practice, we're designing seven or eight hotels throughout Southeast Asia and um, Australasia. The... The buzzword in hotels in 2022 is what's the experience? And a hotel is more than just a place to sleep, um, a place to stay when you're away from home. A hotel is about providing um, the person with a really unique experience and something that they don't get every day. Mm -hmm. um, you may ask, well, what do you mean by that, Coase? Um, I've just come back from um, five weeks in Europe. I spent two weeks working in um, Germany, and then I spent two weeks uh, hiking in the South Tyrol with my wife. And we stayed at hotels in the South Tyrol that were traditional but had this really fabulous 
authentic experience on the inside. Most of them were timber. You you could smell the timber as you walked through. There was this uh, simplicity, this elegance, and um, this huge um, sense of wellness. Uh, and certainly in hotels today, the whole wellness industry is becoming more and more important. And so we stayed in two hotels in the South Tyrol for 10 days, and they were hotels like I've never stayed in them before. They were such a fabulous experience. And every day uh, you'd wake up in, in, in your bedroom, you'd smell that timber, you'd look out and see the beautiful Alps, uh, you'd go to walk for six, hour, six hours in the Alps up to a hut, have a fabulous meal, walk back, you'll jump into the spa, you'll jump into the steam room, and just that entire tactile experience of smell, of taste, of, of hot, of cold, of steam, it was just a sublime experience. And I think that the consumer today is actually looking for an experience, not just a bed. So let's talk about, you know, tactile and olfactory stimulation. There is an increase in wellness centres, isn't there? I mean, not just, you know, online, but also in hotels and in workplaces. Um, and in fact, it's become, it's become almost part of um, the sustainable push, really, or sustainability in some, in some areas. So why do you think this is so and, and how does that reflect when you're designing something let's say all the doesn't matter whether it's a hotel or whether it's a workplace is the issue of wellness something that now has to be factored into the design yeah it is and certainly in the past when we were working on hotels the adage was always to put the the best hotel rooms in the place that had the best you now the adage is that you put the wellness in the part of a hotel that has the best view, where you actually can lie in the pool and actually look across at the at the um, skyline of a city. Um, so certainly it's become a real um, uh, important feature of how we plan out hotels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and, and also um, not not just for the hotel guests itself. Um, most Australians feel uncomfortable walking into a five-star ho hotel. It's kind of where the out-of-towners and, and the tourists go, whereas in, in cultures like in North America, in, in Asia, they're quite comfortable going to a five-star Hyatt for lunch. They're very comfortable meeting in a Sheraton for a morning breakfast meeting. They're very comfortable going to um, a five-star Four Seasons for a, a massage and a, and a treatment. Uh, whereas here in Australia, um, that's probably just on the cusp of starting to have happen where people are starting to use hotels, not just as a place to sleep, but as a place to use. Okay, that's, that's actually interesting. So after being basically decimated because of the pandemic, you're saying that hotels are changing in terms of what they what they're offering and, and so okay so in that point 
moving forward when you're designing a hotel, how does that change your design? I mean, you know, what do you now have to take in, in, into account? Like, do you need to have to take into account that that the um, that the the restaurant has to be bigger and 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 more functional because it's going to be operating for longer? Are there things that need, need to be taken into account? Probably not not larger because I think the um, but there might be more of them, mm -hmm. and each um, facility needs to have its own sense of being authentic and being unique. Um, a lot of hotels are getting named chefs to actually run their F&B now. And so it, it's really starting to, um, it, it's it's creating F&B facilities that can actually almost start to compete with the main street, the high street um, restaurants and bars that we have in our city so so it, it's actually making hotels a more inviting place to go old style hotels you you walk into them and they're large and grand um but there isn't this sense of uh, of intimacy i'm talking in general now there isn't a sense of intimacy there isn't a sense of being special now we're kind of trying to create a dining experience, a, um, a a a wellness experience. That's actually really a special experience. So, um, we're so all... it's it's almost done to inside outside plan the hotel. Back in the day, you would actually start to do your room layouts and, and start to rack and rack sack and pack and, and see how how many keys you could start to have now we're actually much more interested in in what's the unique selling um, point of this hotel what is the F&B facilities what what three restaurants should be aligned with each other is there a brewery um, how does someone from the outside get through to the wellness centre um, so you're actually starting off with with those attractors that actually start to attract the larger market. And so just coming back, it's it's really interesting the stats of what F and B does in hotels. I think in in Asia and in America, um, F and B might make sixty percent of the profit of the of the operating profit of a hotel, whereas here in Australia it's much lower. It's like the thirty percent. So so there's there's a paradigm shift there to get more um, more people to use hotels, not just for sleeping. Okay, so on that point, are, are some of these ideas coming from overseas? And and B, um, are, what ideas are we giving to hotels overseas? Is there anything that we offer that that um, hotel design overseas is is looking? Oh, I think. Um, what Australia has offered the world for many, many years is a sense of a motel and a place where you can actually stay and and um, cook in a kitchen that's part of a hotel. You know, our, our Quest and our Pump Hills and all the um, service departments that we have. In in Europe, that's actually not a, um, that's not a concept that um, people have. So... Um, there are a number of Australian hoteliers that are now building hotels in Germany and in Northern Europe, and the little uh, kitchenette is sliding in. 
And uh, so they become more like small apartments, which is already happening in um, in North in in North America. In in Asia, it is very unusual to have your own a kitchen in a hotel room. So what's new in residential design? You guys have, DKO has been doing quite a bit of, you know, stuff in residential, including multi-res as well. Uh, what are you guys seeing is, is, is uh, the trends in residential design? Well, the obvious one that's um, changed in residential design, certainly post-pandemic, is the concept that people are working from home a day or two a week. So... The, the merging, you know, the, the resimercial thing again, the merging of the workspace and the home space. And um, I think every home that we've designed in the last two years, every apartment that we have d designed, we're very conscious of how um, the home office works, where you sit, how it folds away, and where that can be used for a day or two a week. And that's actually put pressure on the actual size of apartments. It's actually made apartments larger um, and it's made homes larger, but it's trying to get more out of more out of a home and more out of an apartment than just a place to actually um, um, play and sleep. So it's actually work, play and sleep. Um, so that's a real change. Probably... The other change, and we often talk about this, Branko, is the whole concept of authenticity. Uh, I think the market, um, the consumer is becoming a lot more savvy. Um, the days of cheap carpet, um, plasterboard, uh, walls and um, paint are over. People are really interested in materiality and stone and concrete and timber. Um, just by example about walking into those hotels in in northern Italy where you could smell the timber. I, I think again that whole tactility of 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 people um, liking a tactile uh, living environment is becoming more and more important. You 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 you've you've mentioned the, the issue of smell of timber. So let's talk about a number of times actually. So let's talk about the need for biophilic design. Um is this is this is something that's, that's well in Sydney? It's, it's certainly um, becoming very um, how would I say? I won't say normal. It's becoming the de rigueur, I believe the term is. Um, are you seeing biophilic design as, as as a basis of a lot of design in, uh, across Melbourne, particularly in commercial design? I think it's really important, and I, I think you've you've been to our stu studio here in Melbourne and our studio in Sydney. Um, we. Basically, designed the planting layout of where we put the plants prior to where we put the seeds. So the whole greening of the environment was very important for us. Um, the stats are that people, um, that the emotional, mental health of people actually does increase if they live in a biophilically designed environment. So we're actually looking at any opportunity anywhere to actually grow uh, and nourish um, uh, greenery. We looked at the, the images of our office, of our new office building um, up the street here. That's got a green a green facade. 
and um, very interested to actually green that up as much as we can. Is that something that you think that that, w that will change over time, or do you, or is this part and parcel of, of now how design has to be done? No, I think I think if you look at um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a um, mid-century fan. If if you look at a lot of the mid-century architects, there's always this beautiful merging of inside and outside, and the the garden that was outside would actually merge into the inside, and where the glass pane that separated the inside and outside was almost incidental. So I think it's a it's always been really strong in in architecture, but I think it's now with the link to emotional and mental health, it's actually becoming really, really stronger and and a, a critical part of our thinking. What challenges do you see the architecture and design and construction industry um, having to face in the next 12 or 18 months? Is it is it supply chain or are there other things on the horizon that, that uh, the industry should be looking, looking to um um, you know, you know. Oh, yeah, I think it's obvious that there are major supply chain issues and um, there are major uh, cost issues. I think it's going to, uh, I think that the way that we as architects need to respond to that is that we need to probably be more pragmatic about how we put buildings together, really keen to look at a lot more timber. Um, um, I think... Um, uh, simplicity is is a beautiful thing. I think, as I've said before, a lot of architects, including ourselves, we often get too obsessed with what the object, the structure actually looks like. I think the experience on the inside is one where, as architects, we can have a lot more input, uh, and they're not really items that are a part of the cost and the supply chain issues that we currently have. So I, I, I guess, in short, my my answer is that we really need to pare what we do down and, and really find this sense of, of of elegant simplicity. What is a recent DKO design? Do you think that deserves more acclaim than it's gotten? Why? That's a good question. <laughs> Only objective, of course. Yeah. Um, no, it's a really good question, and and. Um, I thought about this, and uh, probably Deco is now our, our 22nd year. Um, a house that we did in year one was for a, a friend of mine on the Yarra River in Melbourne, and it was a um, two three-storey houses that sat on top of each other, and um, the friend had used the previous architect and just couldn't get a viable um, outcome, and probably being Dutch and being obsessed about the program, we we figured out that the program will be solved if you put the car park right between the two houses. So there's a, a driveway that goes down to the midpoint, there's a house above that and a house under that, and that solved the issue and it became a very successful pair of homes. Um, architecturally, they were just red brick and... Um, the client is still a very good friend and he's extended the houses probably four or five times in the last 20 years. But it, it, it just taught me, I guess, that if you have a robust idea uh, that is a subset of solving the program, 
you can actually make something that's really uh, really um, beautiful and um, and it's a great place to actually live. Kirsten Kaiser, founding principal of DKO, thank you very much for your time. Franco, it's uh, lovely talking to you again and um, I hope you have a fabulous uh, festive season coming up. Thank you. You've been listening to Kirsty Kaiser, DK, a DKO founding principal. This is Branko Melitic from Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time. Goodbye. I'm Branko Melitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.